Uh, welcome to another week of this week in government enforcement. It's a big one, guys. I got dressed up for this. Um, <laughs> we got one thing on the agenda. It's Lisa Monaco's uh, remarks on corporate criminal enforcement. Um, significant development on September 15th. So we brought on uh, our partner and friend, Jeff Martin. And as always, I'm joined by Jeff Martino. So for purposes of today's call and only today's call, We've got two Jeffs, and unfortunately, their names are close enough, but we're, I'm going to call them Martin and Martino. So the, we're going to be using last names here like ESPN does on all of their talk shows. Um, so, um, yeah, so so Mar Martin is going to be leading the discussion today, Jeff Martin. Um, and then obviously, Martino and I are going to be jumping in and out. Although I, I got to tell you, um, when I was reading these remarks on, on the 15th, I had a flashback to the um to the movie boys in the hood it's the it's the party that um ice cubes character doughboy's mom throws him when he gets sprung from jail the first time and he's playing dice in the backyard or not dice he's playing dominoes in the backyard with all of his buddies and they just pan up and he throws the domino down throws the gauntlet down and he says domino mother blah and everyone just looks at him. He throws down the gauntlet. He lets everybody know that game is on. I'm ready to go. I will tell you guys that when I read this, the immediate reaction in my mind was Ice Cube's Doughboy's you know, comment in that movie. Because it really is one of those what I call domino moments. Lisa Monaco really did throw in the Department of Justice, frankly, really did throw down the gauntlet here on white collar um, corporate criminal enforcement. And, uh, and we'll talk about that today. I'm, I'm probably sure this is the first time anybody's compared Lisa Monaco to Doughboy's character in Boys in the Hood. But there is a similarity, at least in my my crazy mind. So, Jeff Martin, why don't you maybe kick, kick it off here? Sure. Uh, thanks, Jerome. And I'm relatively certain that your mind's the only 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 time that's ever happened before. So you can uh, you can keep that one. <laughs> so yes, um, this um, conceptually, this memo or the process of issuing memos by um, deputy attorneys general over the years has been a um, a mechanism by which the Department of Justice has issued new policy procedure to uh, departmental prosecutors, both at main justice and out in the various US attorneys' offices around the, the country, as to how to approach corporate criminal enforcement. And these have dealt with various topics over the years, ranging from kind of privilege in, uh, in corporate criminal prosecutions, um, more recently, um, quite consistently dealing with this idea of how much emphasis to put on the prosecution of companies themselves versus pursuing individuals who are engaged in, in corporate misconduct. And of course, we had the Yates moment back in 2015, which everyone will remember, which was kind of a seminal moment in that sort of thinking and initiative. And I think this memo, latest one from Monica, really doubles down on, on that. I'm, I'm sure we'll come back and, and talk about this, that in a bit. But this is actually the second of these memos that Monica has put out. The first one, pretty much this time last year in October, kind of set the groundwork for a lot of what we're seeing now in this much larger, more comprehensive memo that's come down. But that established a... Um, 
an advisory body um, that Monaco set up within the Department of Justice, including department stakeholders, outside um, stakeholders in this advisory group, which then came back and the, the findings and the thoughts of that group have led to this kind of pronouncement of Justice Department policy, um, again, on individual prosecutions, on corporate prosecutions and cooperation, and then on uh, compliance monitors, which is the third prong of what this memo covers, all of which are, um, are hot topics. There's some um, interesting developments in, in each area of that. And uh, Jerome, I'll pause there and we can, we can either delve into each of those kind of in turn, or we can pick up some what we think are probably the key takeaways at the beginning and then yeah so so maybe jeff martin let's talk about the some of the key takeaways right i mean by my read there are three kind of i'm going to put them in you know descending order the first being this presumption that if you voluntarily self-report um, absent special circumstances, it is the Department of Justice policy now that there will no, not be any guilty pleas entered. Now, um, you know, MPAs, DPAs, you know, for sanctions, monetary sanctions, that, 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 that it's silent on that. And each function of the Department of Justice is responsible for creating their own policy on what exactly this means in practice. But that top line, that voluntary self-disclosure equals no guilty plea is is a sea change it is a promise and she said predictability is key in her keynote and she underlined that so clearly trying to send a message then there's also individual accountability and then there's how the how the department's going to calculate um history of misconduct right that's kind of the sneaky one that no one's really talking about but they're basically saying not all misconduct is prior misconduct it's not it's not all going to be treated the same and then there's corporate monitors which is the fourth so maybe let's talk about the um maybe let's talk about this presumption of declination right it you know what's new what's not new what changed what hasn't changed necessarily yeah i mean this idea, obviously, encouraging voluntary disclosures is, is absolutely nothing new and the department's always been keen to do that for, for obvious reasons. It's always been a challenge, as you said, with the predictability being underlined is kind of the calculus that the companies go through in determining whether or not to make a disclosure. What are the pros and cons of doing that? The um, And most significantly from the Justice Department's perspective, what's the upside to the company of disclosing versus not disclosing. Um, and I think this is, is, as you said, driven a little bit by different areas of, of the Justice Department. And we've had the FCPA, Corporate Criminal Enforcement Policy. Um, Jeff can talk about the antitrust equivalent of this, which is probably the longest standing one. But I think the memo now says, as you said, sets the, the frame for the whole Justice Department and says, individual divisions, units of the Justice Department all need to have clear published guidelines that say, what are we gonna, how are we gonna treat companies who make disclosures and what benefits are gonna be um, available to those companies that do. And so there's likely to be some continued movement in this area, maybe not in the FCPA world and the antitrust world, which has been 
um, had those for a while, but we may see in, in other areas of the Justice Department. Well, you... well let, let Jeff Martin, let me stop you there. And let me throw it to Jeff Martino. What do you think this changes, if anything, in the antitrust space? I don't think it changes much in the antitrust space at all. I mean, for me, it's um, it, it really is a sea change on how the department is looking at corporate enforcement, given the history uh, and the troubled history of the antitrust leniency policy really within the department. I mean, it was a huge lift, you know, 20, 30 years ago in order to get this through. And it's just gained momentum, I would say, over the last five years so that other components have really started to take a look at this and it, it's it's moved forward in a way that um in the past I, I think you know the antitrust division was was considered the stepchild on this issue and people really questioned why could you let how could you let a company walk so um but that being said i think the division is kind of um you know patting itself on the back a bit here and is looking to, I think they'll they'll continue to see or try to find ways that they can make it more clear and predictable because that's the one thing that the division, I think is um, by tinkering and messing with the policy over the years, it has created such nuances that it's really confusing for companies to understand what are the clear benefits here and what are the risks. And so maybe, Maybe it's the division taking a, a closer look again to simplify their leniency program so that it is more clear and predictable. So that so so if I'm sort of you know cutting through your comments, uh, Jeff Martino, it almost sounds like what you're saying is the, the leniency program was the first, uh, not perfect, but it was tinkered with and tweaked over the years. But the general principles aren't going to change because the leniency is first in gets gets a pass and everybody else, presumably everybody else that wouldn't be self voluntary self-disclosure because it's already been disclosed to the department. So it seems like what the department is doing is kind of using that somewhat as a model for both the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, but then also, you know, this more recent corporate uh, criminal enforcement policy. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And, and I think it's important to understand the why the division created this program. And one, it was really because it's, we're talking about a conspiracy crime, right? And so it's really hard to uncover um, what is supposed to be secret. And so it was the incentive to create, you know, someone to rat out somebody else. I don't know if that's true. The same situation in context is true of other components, right? Yeah. But what I, what I do think is also interesting that, um, and it may be a model, may not for other components, is, is what are the benefits that, that Lisa Monaco is asking components to, to lay out there. For the division, the benefits are your first thing, you get a pass. There's, you have to pay restitution, but you're getting basically a, a declination. Um, and nothing's out there publicly that you're admitting to. You get a letter, a, you know, a, basically a side letter agreement that only sees the light of day if there's, um, if there's litigation or prosecution down the line against others. The other thing is a, a clear incentive is single damages on private uh, private actions that follow on the, the criminal prosecution. So I think that's, uh, it'll be interesting to see what components do as far as creating other incentives. And I think the biggest incentive um, under uh, a portion of the leniency program by the division is if you're a current employee 
and you cooperate, um, you're also getting that free pass and that non-prosecution agreement. So that's a really benefit because, you know, companies don't commit crimes as a corporate, they're committing crimes through individuals. Um, and, and so that's, those are some uh, some very clear incentives that I think uh, will be interesting to see whether those are modeled by other components. So I'm going to read the quote from the, the, from her speech. Absent aggravating factors, the department will not seek a guilty plea when a company has voluntarily self-disclosed, cooperated, and remediated misconduct, right? And so there, there's always the cooperation and remediation elements of that. And um, I, I look at that sentence in kind of the context of this speech, because, you know, while everybody is talking about the, the, the sort of the declination context, I note that the declination discussion is third in the order in her speech. She first talked about individual accountability and said some pretty aggressive things in there about individual accountability and some perception that companies are dragging their feet. Frankly, prosecutors are dragging their feet to address, you know, corporate resolutions first before the individual actions uh, come about. And then a uh, an interesting discussion of the history of misconduct. And so I kind of look at this in reading the tea leaves. I, I do think that um, this discussion about whether a guilty plea is going to be entered or not and what the or whether it's a dpa or an mpa if a guilty plea is not entered it's it's going to be driven i think in large part about what a company has done how quickly they've moved to provide the department information on individual accountability and then also what the company's history is right and what its real history is right does it have a, a you know guilty plea that happened 10 years ago is there a regulatory fine that happened or regulatory action that happened more than five years ago in a totally separate division right there are all types of different criteria that the department is now you know kind of articulating for the first time in determining what is the true nature of misconduct but let's not kid ourselves she spoke about those two things first and was sort of, you know, chastising the, 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 the corporate bar, if you will say, look, especially individual accountability. Um, when you find out hot documents or information about individuals, true cooperation and true um, uh, self-disclosure means basically thinking running to the department first. I mean, I'm paraphrasing her, but I'm not para I'm not paraphrasing her that much. I, I do think she used the word running or close to it, right? She was basically saying, when you find out information about an individual, your immediate reaction should be to run to the Department of Justice. And the question I have is, does that mean that if you don't do that, and what are the timelines in how, how much time you have to run to the Department of Justice. You know, I do think that's going to have to be fleshed out in these in these component um, policies. I, I I also think that this is going to create an incredible tension within companies, right? I mean, their boards, their audit committees, um, their management are going to have to make, and, and frankly, their counsel are going to have to make really fast decisions really quickly in order to pursue a basically a real and identifiable benefit that the Department of Justice has put on the table and said, if you come to the table with all of this, we will give you the, the, the basically the non-guilty plea. And we could talk about whatever resolution looks like, but you don't have to worry about a guilty plea. You know, I, I think boards and management, th there's a clear benefit there 
um, that they can that, that they can now articulate for the first time. And of course, it's going to depend upon what the remediation and the cooperation looks like, right? And, and they're going to have to be well counseled on that. Um, but you're but there's a sense I have that you are expected to give up individuals. And that's never really not been the case. Let's not kid ourselves, right? The, the department has always expected cooperating companies to provide information on, you know, all people, all, uh, you know, everyone involved in the misconduct, right? That's the, the that, that's going back to the Yates memo, it's various, you know, iterations. Um, but then now, they're, they're sort of making that, what I view a part of this, this, guilty plea declination process, which is you need to not just provide this information, but provide it really quickly. Oh, and by the way, if a resolution, a corporate resolution is dragging, in our view, we're going to go ahead and bring an action against individuals. That's also, there's nothing that says they can't do that. And they've done it in the past, but there's a, the way these things generally work is that the corporate resolution comes first, and then the individuals either at the same time or shortly thereafter. Um, but here, the department's saying, you know what? If we don't think you're moving quick enough, line prosecutors or company, we're just going to go ahead and prosecute the individual. Oh, and if we don't think we have enough information to do that, we're going to hold your feet to the fire in terms of have you truly cooperated uh, sufficient to get a, a denial of a guilty plea. So I do think this individual accountability thing is largely going to be the horse that drives this entire declination buggy if you will but curious to hear your thoughts yeah and i think it will play into that calculus and i think those of us who find ourselves in front of those those board meetings making those decisions is everyone needs to understand it's not sort of a binary thing once you've made the decision to go in you don't automatically get that gold star and that benefit it's a real commitment to them following through with the cooperation and everyone needs to understand exactly what that cooperation will entail and as you said, Jerome, that's always entailed giving up the information that will allow the department to prosecute individuals. But this idea in the new memo that, as you said, chastising the defence bar for, for playing games or, or for kind of um, manipulating the process, with, withholding information till the end. The um, Monica, at least in her speech about this, was quite forthright in in some of her comments there. Um, I think there will be challenges because there are some real questions about whether our view as, def as defense counsel about what's timely and what an individual's prosecutor sat on the other side of the table will feel is timely might not always align. And a couple of examples I've thought of over the past week thinking about this are, well, if you're conducting an internal investigation and you know that it's something that the department's interested in, do you need to be producing documents on a rolling basis or can you wait until the end of the investigation? You might not know how important a particular document is until you've completed your whole review and you know the sequence of events. Someone in an interview has explained the significance or otherwise of something. And so there's going to be a real pressure to get to the end game with that kind of investigation really quickly so that you're not then deemed by the prosecutors for um for dragging your feet but defining that and teasing some of that out in practice is going to be really really challenging going forwards i think with the department jeff yeah jeff martino yeah i was gonna i mean i think this is a another area where the antitrust division's leniency program may be helpful to other components in that 
they've established a marker system so that you don't have to complete your investigation uh, uh, before you start producing, but you say, hey, we've uncovered um, uh, perhaps certain conduct that we think might violate you know, these laws. We have, we're gonna conduct an investigation, you know, and you kind of set a marker, letting, giving enough information that you're, you're, you're ready to self-report, but you don't have everything yet. Um, I don't know how that will necessarily work through other components, but it's been a very successful aspect of the leniency program in, in the division. Um, you know, I, I will also comment just as far as the speed. The division has put out, the antitrust division put out guidance that they expect, even if the compliance officer becomes aware of illegal conduct, that's when the clock starts. And so if you're not, if the company's not reacting to that initial uncovering by a compliance officer, that you may get dinged down the line and not qualify for a conditional leniency. So it'll, I think there's going to be uh, guidance from other components on, you know, when does that clock start and how is that going to be interpreted? Because I, I agree. That's, that, that's a very difficult question. So, so I, one thing that I am thinking about that I think uh, I'm not taking a position, but it's something that is becoming abundantly clear is that the decision of a company to move quickly and self-report is one that truly is that of the self-interest of the corporation, the entity itself, right? Because the because the, the department has separated the company from the individuals. The decision to seek leniency for the company in whatever way that looks like, a, a guilty plea declination, an all-out declination, MPA, whatever you want to call it. Um, that decision um, requires independence of thought and consideration. And so part of me is wondering, this is all new. Like at some point on the 16th, corporate America, and frankly, anyone that does business in the U.S. from corporate, woke up and said, okay, there's now a new standard for running into the Department of Justice. And it's something that from a from a sort of a global defense standpoint, we've never really had to think about, but now we have this possibility of getting some pretty favorable treatment. Although you can question whether, you know, you can get dinged pretty hard at an MPA or DPA from a financial standpoint and, and, and the press, while not the same as a, as a guilty plea or an indictment, it's not always flattering, but, but I think we can agree that there's a difference between a guilty plea and an MPA and a DPA. Um, but it's that independence of thought and how that decision is made. And who's involved in making that decision? I think that, you know, boards and management and, you know, outside counsel are going to think, have to think long and hard now what this means from a corporate governance standpoint, right? Because, I mean, you can, I, I can see all sorts of things falling or following in the, the, the wake of a decision to not voluntarily report or not to voluntarily report within a week of learning of significant facts. But I'd be curious to hear you guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, from the investigations perspective and the governance perspective, I mean, I think the timeline means that some of these things, there's benefit to thinking about them ahead of time before whatever it is comes down the pipe. I mean, it's not something that, that boards are necessarily thinking about ahead of time, but 
from a from a governance perspective, I think um, I think you're right. Some of this could play, and I think some other elements of this uh, memo do start to play into kind of forward-looking governance expectations as well. So I think it's it's interesting that the effects of some of this stuff goes beyond the pure enforcement context and starts getting very much into corporate governance and compliance topics as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think if, if a company doesn't have, you know, an, um, if the, you know, if, if the board doesn't have an audit committee that's already set up, you know, what we're doing is in the leniency context is that's one of the first things that we, we ask is that who on the board can we talk to that's independent okay. um, and, and what's, you know, who else do they need to assist in making the decisions for the company? Because oftentimes um, with these type of uh, corporate crimes, you're having CEOs involved, right? And so yes. they can't be involved in the decision-making process on when to go, whether to go in and cooperate. So yeah, it's definitely got to be top of mind. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think on the, how do you judge, sort of information flowing from the company to the department um, once a disclosure has been made, right? I think that, that that's going to vary from line prosecutor and manager at the department for the manager of the department. I've had one discussion with a, you know, a local or, or a, a, a branch head of a, of a component unit. And, um, you know, he said to me, Jerome, look, you, you know, like, we don't have to know everything, right? You used to use common sense, but it never hurts to have regular check-ins when we're in the middle of the investigation, just to make sure that we are apprised of, of matters that are developing to ensure that you keep your cooperation status, right? It's not like that we're going to ask for everything, but if you talk about broad issues or departments and, and wondering if it's something that the department cares about or not, communication is always the best. And, and that's that that's an uncomfortable position to be in um many times because you know you 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 know whenever you share information with the department, the more information you share with the department, the more it can potentially damage not only the corporation but individuals. But the reality is, you know, it's a uh, it's now becoming closer to a, a balancing act where it could actually, the more information you share could actually benefit the company. Um, and um, that might that might change the way that frankly defense counsel interact with line prosecutors in the middle of an investigation. So I, I, I think we're not gonna find this out tomorrow or next week or maybe next year, but I, I, it'll be interesting to see when we look back in five years, how, the, the art, and it is an art, of representing corporations and, frankly, individuals, too, in front of the Department of Justice and criminal matters, how that has changed, right? The, the, the little things, the big things. So, yeah, I'll be looking forward to that. Great. Any other thoughts, guys? Well, Jeff, do you want to pick up, uh, Martin, on uh, another major theme as far as compliance in the monitorships and what and what they're thinking there as well as this what i think is uh, also a, a big ask of companies is on the compensation level the clawback that yeah. provisions that they're considering or well, they maybe, want companies to do yeah maybe let's tackle that one first jeff because the um that probably plays into some of the corporate governance and compliance program stuff that we were talking about is that this this part of the memo now which talks about 
an expectation that as part of having a good compliance program in place, um, I'm sure everyone listening will have remembered the um, Department of Justice evaluation of corporate compliance program guidelines, which was another one of these policy and guideline documents that came out. The most recent version, I think, was a couple of years ago, now 2020, um, but that's been around for a few years as well and sets out basically the questions that you're likely to be asked by department prosecutors about the state of your compliance program when they're assessing how to treat that compliance program as a factor in mitigating any penalties, for example, um, that you might receive as, as part of the uh, a settlement. But what the Monaco memo now plays into that is saying, as part of that evaluation process, we're going to expect you to have in place mechanisms to yourself, the company, go after current former executives to claw back compensation from them to effectively, or to, to do two things, I guess. One, to hold them personally accountable for criminal conduct that they participated in. And second of all, to rebalance the economic impact of what's happened away from the company and its shareholders ultimately, which the Justice Department is interested in, to the individual executives who are responsible. And that's significantly new. I think, and probably Jerome can talk best to this, there's some limited application of this previously in the public com company yeah. context in um, Sabans Oxley and, and Dodd Frank about- In the context of her statements. Yeah. yeah. Um, but not more broadly, and certainly something we hadn't seen an expectation as far as regular, non-public or even public company executive compensation and compliance programs. And that's going to be interesting to see, I guess, first of all, how that plays out in terms of practice on the front end and whether that's going to become normal now in negotiating and setting executive compensation. Yeah, so, so yeah, Jeff, that was my question. Is there any standard articulated that we can divine from the, the speech on when a clawback is appropriate? Not yet. Um, and it they are saying that this is going to be included in more detail in the next iteration of this uh, guidelines on evaluating corporate compliance programs. But it's going to be interesting. It's going to be sensitive, but you can very easily foresee the situation where you are on the other side of the, the table to the Department of Justice and they're asking, do the executives that you've identified as being responsible for this conduct, do their contracts allow you to claw back compensation? Um, have you escrowed their, um, some compensation to make it more easy to do that? And then exactly what is the trigger for you exercising that? All, let's be clear, there's always been an expectation you're gonna take appropriate disciplinary action against um, employees and executives involved in misconduct. And that might be termination of employment, that may, might mean not giving bonuses or whatever. And those kind of financial things have always been an expectation. Um, but this goes kind of beyond that. And when, when's it gonna be appropriate to exercise that? You then as a company become something of a prosecutor yeah, in, exactly. in assessing that. And is it the same standard? Because of course the department's objective is 
when are we going to initiate a criminal proceeding against these individuals? Individuals, right, exactly. I could see two sides of the coin, right? I could see an individual saying, well, I know I'm going to get prosecuted. I will probably end up entering a plea um, or resolving in some way. And as a part of that, the, the clawback is going to be expected, right? It's going to be me forfeiting my compensation. That's the expectation. So I might as well do that early on and not give the company heat over their lack of clear contractual rights to clawback my compensation. On the flip side, I could see an intransigent, you know, officer who's going to fight, you know, till the till death do us part pointing at a lack of a clear contractual right to do that and that just and then that puts the company in a very difficult position where they haven't necessarily been able to execute on one of the um i'm not going to call it expectations but one of the things that the department has laid out in its guidance for likely full cooperation so it'll be interesting to see and so companies never have the same tools at their disposal to be looking at um executives conduct or whatever and so um is it that you would be expected to do it i think if the department's bringing charges you would certainly be expected to do it how about if the de if the department didn't see um that enough evidence to bring a criminal prosecution how does that play out with the executive then defending against the company and saying well the department didn't never charge me with this so now you guys need to to cough up that compensation, just uh, untold complexities with this this part of the memo to see how yeah. this one plays out. Real quick, and I put real quick in quotes, Jeff Martin, uh, why don't you hit some of the highlights on the, uh, the corporate monitorship? Yeah, and this is really just a question of transparency. And part of this is going to the certainty point with disclosure that you mentioned before, because if you start down this path and make a disclosure, it's going to take you at least a year or two to negotiate your resolution with the department in the first place. Then there's a possibility that you're going to get a compliance monitor, and that might be two or three years on top of that at the end. So it's all adding to the transparency and certainty going in for companies to weigh up what's going to happen. And with the monitorship, it's never been the most transparent of exercises in appointing a monitor, and it can be quite a fraught relationship. We could do many other webinars on the, the relationship between companies and compliance monitors post um, after these settlements. Um, but all of this is intended to inject some certainty into when will a monitor be appropriate? And that will depend on the state of the compliance program and your level of cooperation, all of those things. Then how do, how do how does the department or each area of the department choose a monitor, set its terms of reference, and then what happens when the monitor's there? And I think one of the most significant parts of this mem the memo is that I think going forwards, we will see the department more closely involved for the full term of the monitorship than we have done in the past. Quite often, but previously, we've seen the department wrap up a big investigation, issue a press release, the prosecutors um, shake hands and, and walk off to the next case that they've got. I think the expectation now is that they will continue to monitor the company, but also monitor the monitors to make sure that the process is being done um, transparently and, and in accordance with, with the terms of reference and so on. And that may be a benefit to companies as well. Yeah, that's 
thanks. That's it, it, the very interesting. So I guess I'm gonna we're we're a bit past time here, but I want to wrap us up. You know, one thing that I think I'm gonna be looking for, I think we're gonna be looking for in this in these component pieces of guidance is there's this notion that we've been hearing about in cases of well the department can't decline a case the department can't bring right I, I we we legally if there is no case to bring because there isn't a legal charge to be had for whatever reason that there, there can't be a declination um this the, that <laughs> that practice or, or that articulation runs headlong into the certainty that Lisa Monaco is is looking to achieve through announcing this policy. And so how's that going to play out in when is a disclosure expected at the first sniff of factual impropriety or is something more expected, um, i.e. some kind of quasi legal determination that there might be a legal violation. I, I, I say this only because, you know, I'm hearing at present that the department is taking this position. Well, we can't decline a case we don't have, so we can't decline, even though the reality is we're not going to be taking action. We can't give you the declination because we never even had the case to begin with. Um, it's just an interesting interplay with the certainty that Lisa Monaco is, is seeking to provide. And, and, I, and I'm very grateful for it. I think companies are grateful for it. But, you know, again, the devil's going to be in the details of a lot of this guidance about what, the, what that actually means. Like, what, 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 what does it mean to, to not pursue a case and what is expected to be disclosed at what point, what level of factual and or legal determination? Um, this, the, these policies at the, at, the, at the component levels might not provide that. Um, but hopefully they provide more than we have right now. Yeah, I think unfortunately a lot of the time you'll be judged after the fact on that when when all of those questions that you don't know the answers to at the beginning and, and no. Yes, I guess it, I hear you. I hear you. So, all right, Jeff Martino, Jeff Martin, thank you very much. Um, gathering crowds, 70s lounge music's taking us out. <laughs>